I'm Ben Myers, Associate Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this edition of the podcast, just another home run guest here. We have another one of our new faculty members. It's Al Shaplow, class of 1978, who's one of our visiting associate professors of law. He's also been an adjunct here at the law school, and he just has this great wealth of knowledge and insight on education, legal education, and working in this Connecticut County DA's office. And it's just a pleasure to speak with Al. So hopefully uh, you can stick around for this entire episode because everything in here is really tremendous this week. Reminders, as we always do, top of the show, albanylaw.edu slash COVID-19. Just make sure you're up to date on everything happening here on campus as the pandemic is still around. If you want to have the best information on the day-to-day here at Albany Law School. Social media is the best way to do that. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. We're on all those different platforms. And if you like this episode of the podcast, you want to hear more, we've been talking with our new faculty recently. We've been talking with students earlier in the semester. Then subscribe any of the major podcast services, or you can check out the full archive on our SoundCloud account. All right, let's talk to Professor Shep. Back here on the Albany Law School podcast with another one of our new professors here joining us this fall, Al Shaplow, class of 78. We always love to see the alums coming back, and he's a visiting associate professor of law. Professor Shaplow, welcome to the Albany Law School podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. It's it's great to be back. It's nice to come back as an alum. I mean, it's that's always special. Let me start off with first semester. We're a couple weeks in. We're a little over halfway through. How's it been going? Fabulous. Um, the administration um, is wonderful. The the people are incredibly helpful. Um, it's a it's a warm and it's a friendly atmosphere that I've experienced, and that's not only from the from the academic side, from my colleagues and, and administration, but also the students. The students are, are very approachable. They're very eager. Uh, I, I'm, I'm having a very good time. I'm enjoying it a great deal. Now, of course, you were here as a student and you're coming back as a faculty member, but why Albany Law? Why was this place the one for you? Well, first of all, I live in the capital district, so this was the only, you know the only law school in town in in terms of teaching. But I've always taught law at one level or another. Coming back to Albany Law School is special because obviously, like we just talked about, I graduated from here, and um, it's a I see it as a very practical law school where it's designed to take students who are interested in practicing law and giving them the tools and the education they need to to be able to be good and effective attorneys. We actually ran into each other a little bit during orientation <laughs> and we've talked off mic, we've talked or we've had some emails back and forth, but I saw you were teaching evidence with us this semester. Now, obviously that seems like a pretty simple concept on its <laughs> on its surface and probably a good thing for lawyers to have a course in, but what is evidence when we hear, oh, I have to get to evidence class or co- my course in evidence? What are they learning? What are students engaging with when they take evidence? Well, e- evidence is one of the 
core courses that all students, all law students have to take and all students at Albany Law School have to take. And it's the reason is, is because it's a bar, it, it, it's a heavily tested bar course. And what we teach at Albany is the federal rules of evidence, often referred to as the FRE. That, that's a whole body of evidence law that's been codified and used in the federal courts. And it is the body of evidence law that is uh, tested on the, on the bar exam. But along with that, we also do some common law. And I also do some New York law of evidence when the principles uh, vary a lot so that the students are aware um, of, the, of the New York rule as well as, well as the federal rules. Just to follow up quick there, could you just give us an example of where New York might differ from what the feds require for evidence? Uh, There's a lot of areas where there's where there's differences, but some of the areas are in the areas of evidentiary privilege. Other areas are in the areas there's there's a few areas of, of scientific evidence or what we call expert opinion evidence where the New York rules are are slightly different than the FREs. Why is it important to take these kind of base level courses? I mean, there's so many students here that go on to work in government or go on to work in tax or in immigration where I mean, I'm not an attorney, but it doesn't seem like evidence is a huge part of what they do. But if am I, am I wrong about this? Why is it important to have courses like these right at the beginning of law school? Well, Ben, that's an excellent question. Uh, in fact, it's the very first thing that I tell students when they join my class in evidence. Your perception is is totally understandable, but when you think of it from the standpoint that even if your goal as an attorney is to be a transactional lawyer, in other words, you know, don't even you know do everything you can to stay out of a courtroom, not be a courtroom lawyer. You still need to know the rules of evidence. And the reason for that is, is that as a transactional lawyer, you're going to be creating documents or giving advice or, you know, counseling or, or writing opinions with regard to whatever transaction, you know, you, you deal with as a, as an attorney, but anything an attorney does, whether it's writing a contract execute, you know, doing a will for somebody, doing an estate plan, uh, and anything you can think of, even a house closing, could possibly end up in litigation. The importance of evidence for the transactional lawyer is to understand that when they're doing something, um, what could be the consequences if it does end up in litigation. And to then, if they know the rules of evidence, to then conduct themselves or to work in a, in a way such as to make the outcome, if it does go to litigation, more, more in favor of your client. Okay, but we also have one that I think evidence kind of goes hand in hand with that you're teaching for us this fall. <laughs> Criminal does. procedure investigations. Yeah, well, we've all seen Law and Order. Uh, I bet it's not that smooth as in real life, but oh, that it were. <laughs> I, I'd love to have Sam Waterston on my team. Just, I'm just saying. Yes. Yeah. What are the What are the major pieces of that course? I would imagine evidence probably translates pretty well, and there is a lot of crossover between the two. There is the the, the um, although we don't the, the two classes stay 
you know, totally separate. But the criminal procedure class that I've taught there as an taught at Albany as an adjunct, and now will be teaching as a visiting associate professor, it was often referred to in my day as constitutional criminal procedure. It really involves um, in-depth discussions of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments and, and their relationship to police investigation. Not to interrupt you, but could you, for those, who, for those of us who aren't as familiar, what are the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments? <laughs> okay. Fourth Amendment. I, I mean, I know them, but I, I yeah. have a law professor here, so I'm going to ask him. <laughs> okay. Um, hopefully I can do a good job. Um, the Fourth Amendment deals with search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment deals with the representation, uh, with uh, the, the right against self-incrimination. And the Sixth Amendment deals with the right to counsel and uh, in, at critical stages in the proceeding that, and, and the right to a trial by jury and, and, and uh, issues like that. So it's really about search and seizure statements or admissions, confessions, and uh, the right to counsel uh, in a criminal proceeding. We we talked about we touched on this just a little bit here when we were talking about transactional attorneys and maybe some attorneys who aren't necessarily courtroom attorneys. But why do they have? Why is it important to do this stuff early on in your career? I could see an argument made: Oh, I have to take evidence in my third year just because I have to take it. Why is it so important to front load these into the one L year? Well, the, the evidence is actually two and three L. Um, and the the reason why it's encouraged to be taken in the early two L, for you usually fall two L, is because you, we've already alluded to it. And, and you actually figured it out. When you take a class like constitutional criminal procedure, you're talking, you're, you're, the, the knowledge of evidence helps you to help understand those subjects it does help to piece things together. So if you have it before you start to take the really heavy courses, I think evidence helps you to begin to integrate the, the information. So that's a lot of the stuff you're working on with us here at Albany Law, but there's also this great wealth of knowledge that you're bringing to us here at the law school because you were actually a big part of the criminal justice department at the College of St. Rose, which is for those outside of the Capital District, maybe maybe a 10, 15 minute drive here from campus. And you Probably less led, than that. Yeah. Hopefully on a good day. No traffic. Not yeah, a good day. Right. <laughs> Not at five o'clock. <laughs> That's something that a lot of the 1Ls do learn when they get here besides <laughs> That's evidence right. That's right. and procedure. So at the undergrad level, though, what are some of the, the areas of law that you explore with students there versus maybe the more in-depth parts that you get to work with students here at the law school? What are some of the big differences between the undergrad experience and now, obviously, the grad school experience? Well, that's, a, that's another really good question. A, a lot of what I do at St. Rose is dealing with courses at a college level. Um, like I do teach constitutional criminal procedure at, at the college and I do uh, supervise the mock trial team, which is a lot about talking about evidence and them learning evidence, of course, only at, at a collegiate level, not, not at a law school level. But my role at the College of St. Rose is also to teach criminal justice. I, I 
also have graduate degree in criminal justice from the State University of New York at Albany. And so I do teach some basic courses in criminal justice, um, which is more taught somewhat law, but more talking about the institutions of criminal justice, the institution of police, the courts, those kinds of things. Uh, Of course, we're living in a time where there's been a lot of upheaval in the criminal justice system, a lot of changes, a lot of protesting, a lot of scrutinizing what police, what the courts do. From a professorial point of view, though, how have you, you seen a change in how students approach criminal justice, why they want to get involved, what their goals are? Yes and no, Ben. Again, that's a very perceptive question because you're you're absolutely right. Um, we're going through today in, in a lot of areas of our society, um, but certainly one of the areas in our society that we're going through a great deal of, of um, change and a great deal of controversy and, um, and, and um, d- disagreement is criminal justice. A lot of people think of that as a bad thing. I, I don't tend to think of it as a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's important that we continue to re-examine our, the principles that we hold in our criminal justice system and to re-examine uh, how we're doing things and to frankly open our eyes to some serious and uh, long-standing problems that have been in the criminal justice system. So I think it, I, I think the debate is good. I, I When I say that, I, I caution that it would be nice if the debate was civil, respectful, and with the idea that everybody says what they think and are willing to listen to all the other different points of view in order to really try to come to an understanding. I, I mean, I think that's the important part. So we've been talking about the collegiate level student, the law school level student. Then there's also this area that you've been working in with the attorney, the law, the lawyer, there's an education for those, again, who don't know, there's continuing legal education courses. We teach some here at the law school. There's Mm -hmm. other law schools that teach them. And from what I was able to gather, you're working with the New York State Office of Court Administrators and the Justice Court Support. Yes. And you're an instructor working in education and all those areas. I, I guess lawyers went to law school already. What more do they have to learn? <laughs> okay. So that, again, it's a good question. And you're going to be a little, probably, and our listeners are probably going to be a little bit shocked at the answer. I want to just clarify one thing. Um, I left the Office of Court Administration in February of this year and because the I wanted to devote the time to Albany Law School. And, I, and I just between St. Rose and Albany Law School, that's more than enough. And so I, I, I left my training position um, and consulting position with the Office of Court Administration in February. But to get to your question, uh, and, and that's not to say that I'm still not training the judges. Just last week, I was invited to give two lectures to the state convention of magistrates that was held in Saratoga. Uh, and so I, I lectured uh, for two hours on uh, a number of topics uh, with them, and, I, and I'm invited back every year to, to lecture them. Let me, let me deal with your question, Ben, because it's a really good one. You are assuming that the judges that I teach are lawyers. Um, it, the answer to that question is almost 70% of them are not. 
lawyer. Wow. I am surprised. Yes. And many people are. Um, of the over 2,000 or, or just about 2,000 courts in the uh, um, town and village courts in the in the state of New York, local criminal courts, it varies sometimes. It, it rarely goes below 65%. It rarely goes above 70%. But these individuals are people who come from all walks of life. The only requirement for being a town or village justice in the state of New York is that you have to be 18 years of age, you can't have committed a felony, and you have to live in the town or village uh, that you're running for the office of town or village justice for. Those are the only three requirements. There are no others. And so I teach everybody from certainly lawyers. There, there are certainly lawyers that are there. But but. To say that is to say that some lawyers who become town and village justices are transactional lawyers, and they really don't, in their careers, really didn't handle criminal justice, which is in criminal law, which is about 80 some percent of what town and village justices do, a little more than 80 percent. So they they come to the class that they, they they're required to go to these classes and and the teach and, and uh, there there is an educational component called a continuing judicial education, which is what I participate in. Um, the rest and, have no. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just to, no, no. just to follow follow up on that. So sure. we're talking like the the first level of courts in New York State yes. versus something like. Um, I don't know, a district court or a court of yep. appeals. This is kind of yep. the, the entry level court system. This is, this is the, the, the court system that handles over a million cases a year. This is the, this is the court closest to the people. Um, I often tell the judges when I'm invited to give lectures that their job in some ways is the most important job in the criminal justice system. And the reason for that is, is that over a million people a year appear before these judges. It may be, you know, something as insignificant as a traffic ticket or maybe a murder, uh, an arraignment on a, on, on a homicide. If people are going to have contact with the criminal justice system, with the court system, with our, with our system of justice uh, writ large, it's probably going to be with the town and village court. So the, when they walk out the door, their impression of lawyers of justice of the, of our of our system of justice is really formed by the relate by what happens to them in these in these courts when they go there because you know they've been given a ticket for a zoning violation or you know the garbage wasn't was put out too early or they have a you know a small dispute with a neighbor or something or a small claim their impression of what the court system is and what our system of justice is 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 formed at that level because chances are they won't ever appear before any one of the more superior well I'll call them superior courts you know courts you know the, the at the county level or or at the state level so just wanted to fo ask one other follow up there so we you've taught uh, undergrads you your grad students here essentially here at the law school and now you're teaching professional people maybe not attorneys, maybe some of them are attorneys, but what, what are the differences between those three levels of student? I mean, this is, I guess, more of a teaching question even than a yeah. law question. 
that progression through the life experience, how different is a professional person to teach versus an undergrad? Well, it, it, you're right. And it, it's, a, again, another good question. Um, what, what, my, what I think of most is to try to gear what I have to say to the audience who's sitting in the seats. So when it's college students, it's about giving them some, you know, basic collegiate education. Um, maybe, you know, hopefully if they're interested, it sparks their interest in law or in law enforcement or whatever. With the law students, I've had this discussion with many of them. I see law school as a, as a team sport. It takes the student, the, the law student, it takes the professor, and it takes the administration. And it, it's a team sport to get them the education, to build the skills, to, to get them in a position to pass the bar examination and become a successful attorney. And I think that's a, a huge team effort. And that's how I that's how I look at that's how I look at law schools. My my job is to is to do my my what I can do from my position to help the student become successful. At the college level, it's more about you know giving them information. You know, it's a collegiate education. It's a, you know let, let them learn about more in depth about the system. And with the judges, my my role with the judges is to to instruct them in how best in in best practices uh, and, and as to how to fulfill their role as a judicial officer. Okay, so we and there's so much more to talk to you about here, Al. It's, it, <laughs> I, as I was doing the the background, I just kept finding these interesting things that have been part of your career, and obviously that's part of what you're bringing to us here at the law school, and. One of the kind of cornerstone ones, I really think, is your experience in the Schenectady County District Attorney's Office, and you mm -hmm. were the chief assistant district attorney. So you were you were the Sam Waterston of Schenectady County, correct? Um, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, perhaps a very poor uh, uh, replication of, of Sam Waterston. Uh, certainly nowhere near as talented um, as as he is, but. Um, and yes, while you were yes. there, you worked on white collar crime, animal abuse prosecutions. Can you just tell us more about your experience there? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as chief assistant, I was, you know, second in command in the office for 18 years. Uh, so I, I tried a variety of cases. I tried, you know, quite a few felony cases, but I did specifically handle white collar crime and animal abuse cases. The white collar crime, because I'm just organized. When you're when you're dealing with white collar crime, you're dealing with a lot of paperwork, a lot of paper trail, you know that that kind of thing. And I just it just kind of intrigued me to try to figure out where the scam was, <laughs> um, and and how to prove it. So that that was just intellectually interesting to me. Uh, and I'd had some in background in accounting and stuff like that. So, so those, you know, skills kind of transferred with regard to animal uh, abuse. I have been involved in animal rights, um, for greater part of 30 years, working with both the United States Humane Association and the New York State Humane Association and with a variety of other or, uh, animal protection organizations. For many years, there was uh, myself and a veterinarian uh, used to travel to teach animal control officers the law of animal abuse or, or uh, 
I can't think of a better way of saying it, the laws involving the protection of animals. I feel very strongly about that, and, and it, 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 was, it was a passion of mine. As we're sitting here talking, although we don't have camera, I have my two boys next to me, my two golden retrievers who are both, um, who are both rescues. I have I have three beagles and they are all rescues as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, um it's it's tough to sleep through the night with three beagles, but <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's good they're they're definitely a, a passion of mine as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now one thing that you did while you're in the the DA's office though is and this goes through many DA's offices throughout the Capital District is we had Albany Law School students that worked in those offices. Yes. So uh, you're obviously a professor now, but when you were in the DA role, what's that relationship like from the district attorney's office point of view? We always, we talk to a lot of students about what their experience is, but as the supervising entity, what's it like to have law school, law school students and specifically Albany Law School students working in your office? Um, it was wonderful. Um, during the years that I was doing that, I was also a clinical professor at Albany, uh, again, as an adjunct. It was a great experience because, you know, it's really sort of teaching in the classroom is fun. I really enjoy it. I, I, I hope I do it well and I hope the students get, you know, get what they need. But when you're in a clinical environment, you're, you're actually hands on. And that's an exciting kind of teaching also. So I kind of looked at the role of having of having Albany Law School students as an opportunity to help them put together what they learned in the classroom with with how that is going to be an application when they're a practicing attorney. It was a different way of approaching it, but it, it was a lot of fun. Now we have to get into the, the philosophical part. We've been talking about the the hard nose to the ground stuff, but now we're getting philosophical here. We have to plug again that you're an alum. What is it like teaching at your alma mater? <laughs> that's a that's that's it's strange. I, I guess you know I was trying to search for a word, and the the only word that kept coming up was strange, in a good way, because I'm down on the podium, you know, in the West Wing and East Wing, the the lecture lecture centers and i look up and i can see the seat where i sat <laughs> and that's an odd feeling <laughs> um and i walk the halls and i realize oh i played basketball in that gym or you know i you know studied in this you know this part of the uh you know and the school has changed you know they've done a lot of construction and stuff like that but still the main building for the most part is is the way it was when when i was there and so walking into a classroom i think oh i took criminal procedure in this classroom um so it, it it's it's it, in a way it's 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 strange but it's a good strange it's 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 not a it's not a bad strange it's it's kind of coming full circle uh, I mean, I've done a lot uh, in practicing law. You know, we've talked about a lot of things. Many people say I can't hold a job. I've done so many different things. <laughs> I'm at the back end of my career now. I mean, I've got there's less in front of me than there is in back of me. And coming back to Albany Law School is is kind of like almost coming full circle, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. And it actually leads into the next philosophical question here you've you've taught law on all these different 
arenas to all these different kinds of students. Why teach law? Why, why has that been a, a passion of yours? I know this is going to sound corny, um, but I, I have loved every minute of being a lawyer. I think that lawyers throughout history is one of the more, as one of the ancient, uh, you know, professions have the ability to change things, to make things better. If I can, and, and I, from my ex-director at the, I'll, I'll steal some of her, uh, her thoughts about it. Um, if I can just do something that makes the judge's job a little better or to makes the judge a little better or makes the student uh, in my class, a, you know, a better citizen or a better lawyer, I believe that that's what we should be doing, that, that the, the, you know, the current generation should be working to make the future generation better than we are, to instill in them how important and how almost sacred it is to hold someone else's future in their hands. I, I mean, I often tell law students, you know, when I'm talking to them, uh, you know, I ask them a question. I said, you know, someday you're going to, you know, you're going to have a license to practice law. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to tell somebody to do something. And what are they going to do? And they look puzzled at me most of the time. And then usually they say, well, I, I assume they're going to do it. And I say, and you better have been right. Otherwise, they're going to pay the price. And uh, that's an awesome responsibility. And for, for generations and, you know, millennia, lawyers have stepped up to do the kinds of things of doing things that are right, uh, even when maybe the trend was the other way. Well, one thing that we try to always do right here on the podcast is the lightning round. Are you ready for the lightning round? Uh, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> It's, it's been a long road to get to the lightning round, so hopefully you got what we, what we need to get you through here at the end, because the lightning round is by far the most important and serious part of the podcast, of course. Okay. So, first question here in the lightning round. If you could live anywhere in the world, you can obviously still teach here at Albany Law School. We want you to stay, but you can live anywhere in the world. Where would you live? Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a quick answer. Is there a particular reason why? <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in the Santa Fe area uh, in, in vacations and stuff like that. And it's just, it's multicultural. It's, it's beautiful. It, the weather is perfect and you can golf almost nine at 12 months a year. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess that kind of leads into the next question here. Let's say you, you win $10 million on the U.S. Open. What are you going to spend it on? Probably on golf equipment, uh, <laughs> uh, but I've often thought about that. You know, every time you buy a lottery, I think most people, when they try to buy a lottery ticket, they think, well, you know, if I win, you know, what would I do with it? But certainly I would contribute to Siena College and Albany Law School because I wouldn't be where I am and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to have the fabulous career and the opportunity to help other people if it were not for, for Siena and Albany. Okay, now we have 
the last question here on the podcast is kind of a loaded question for you, considering <laughs> the work you've done in the Humane Society. But do you have a favorite animal? Now, I think Golden Retriever is probably pretty high on your list, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a pet. Yeah, I think you've kind of hit it. I, I have had Golden Retrievers for, oh man, I can't, I can't tell you how long. Um longer than 30 years. I, in fact, I one of the organizations I work with is both the national and the state Golden Retriever Rescue. In fact, that's how Mikey came to me as a um, as a as a rescue through the, through the system of of Golden Retrievers and and Andy did too. He came up from Alabama through Sunshine, which is a, a Golden Retriever Rescue Service. So I, I guess if I, I love all dogs, um, I've had different dogs before. I've, I've been dog rescue and dog training, but I, I got to say, I love my Goldies. <laughs> okay. Through the lightning round. I hope it wasn't too, too crazy for you. No, no, I enjoyed it. All right. Good. <laughs> we do have one final question. I always ask the same question to every single guest that's ever been on the All Bay Law School podcast. Is there anything you'd like to say to the Albany Law School community? That's a tough one. I, I think the thing I would I would say is I hope we keep doing what we're doing because I think it's important work. I think we're doing a good job with the students. I, I think the students are great and dedicated, and is and I would like to just keep it the team sport that I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. Professor Shaplow, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us um, on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Ben. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased, and thank you for, uh, for inviting me. And go get some dog treats so you can get some dog treats for <laughs> those guys. They were really quiet throughout the entire Yes, they're, they're, they're quiet boys. They, they, they just they play around. <laughs> All right.